Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Last time we discussed the Exodus. Part of that discussion touched on how the idea of monotheism required changes in how Israel thought about things like miracle working. To review, monotheism rejects the notion of the gods or certain humans as magic users who draw upon a universal magical power that lets gods manipulate the world, humans, or each other, and lets humans who know what they are doing do likewise. By contrast, monotheism puts all the power with God and God alone. Thus, Moses and subsequent miracle-working prophets went to great lengths to avoid acting like pagan magicians. In Israel, the prophet is God's representative. He or she replaces the pagan magicians who act through their own power and prowess. The implications of monotheism drive some of the more interesting theological and philosophical problems in the Old Testament, but most modern readers are totally unaware of these matters because we don't understand their world. While not everyone today believes in God, monotheism is assumed as part of how our culture discusses deity, even casually. Even though we still say that something works like a charm, or have people who believe in crystal power or consult their horoscope every day, widespread belief in effectual magic is nowhere near what it was in ancient times. It really isn't part of our everyday thinking. The gulf between ancient and modern mindsets is vast. It's important to remember and try to appreciate that monotheism was a truly revolutionary theological construct. It demanded huge cultural adjustments on the parts of its adherents and their leaders. Polytheism is not just belief in multiple gods. It encompasses a whole cosmology where those multiple gods live. Israelite monotheism had to contend with this older cosmic paradigm as well as the foreign gods. There were two main options open to Israelite monotheists attempt to eliminate the older worldview completely, or to co-opt it and recast it to promote their new worldview. Israelite theology took the latter path and created something that was really quite ingenious. The purity regulations we find in the Old Testament are a brilliant example of how the Torah authors took a cultural construct that spanned the entire ancient Near East and transformed it into an ongoing object lesson about the nature of God and the power of individual humans over their own lives. However, before we get started, it's important for us to understand what was meant by impurity. For starters, impurity was not the same as sin. You did not have to repent from being impure. Modern readers might miss this distinction because the Old Testament expiates both sins and impurity by rituals and sacrifices and, let's be honest, if you're reading the sections on sacrifice and expiation in the Old Testament, you're probably skimming or thinking about something else. It's pretty dry stuff that doesn't exactly grip the modern imagination. 
Also, we don't see impurity in a religious or theological light as part of modern culture. For us, impurity tends more towards a contagion's capacity to spread disease or induce toxic effects on our bodies or environment. In other words, we see impurity as resulting from what anthropologist Mary Douglas calls matter out of place, but what the rest of us call dirt. The ancient world took a different view. Impurity was generally thought to result from the activity of unseen demonic forces. Clearly, this model is unacceptable in a monotheistic setting. Demons have no more business impacting the cosmos than do pagan magicians or deities. On a side note, for the sake of clarity, the Old Testament does not disbelieve in the power of magic or magicians. It's just that God's power was deemed to be superior, and Israelites were not permitted to use pagan magic. But Douglas's theory that contagion is matter out of place does shed some light on biblical impurity. The cosmos exists because of its intrinsic orderliness. The cosmogony of Genesis emerges from the idea of a place for everything and everything in its place. Cosmic order is the opposite of matter out of place. Some scholars have tried to apply this model to clean versus unclean animals based on the correct observation that the larger cosmos and the animal world in particular was believed to reflect human society. But now we come to a very important concept. The biblical antithesis of impurity is holiness. Holiness is best defined as a quality of separateness or otherness. God is the source of holiness, which means that holiness corresponds with proximity to God. The opposite of impurity was purity, obviously, but the opposite of holiness was commonness. That said, we don't yet know enough to have a clear picture of what impurity meant in ancient Israel. The question of placement and orderliness doesn't quite explain it. I'm guessing that by this point you are probably more confused than ever, so let's fill in some additional gaps. The list of things that make someone impure or unclean include leprosy, gonorrheic, coming into contact with a corpse, males who had emitted semen outside of intercourse, menstruants, or women who had recently given birth. If the list seems arbitrary, that's because it is. For example, there were plenty of nasty diseases that were known and catalogued in the ancient world, but none of them produced impurity. In other words, the causes of impurity have no intrinsic meaning as such. They were selected as markers of impurity in order to make a larger point. Each of these things have a connection with the loss of or separation from life, or in other words, death. For corpse contamination, this is obvious. The loss of blood from the menstruant women and the loss of semen in male or other discharges from genital organs represent the loss of life-generating fluids. Post-childbirth is the end of generating a new life. Leprosy is a condition that resembles death and so on. Here is the key concept that drives the Israelite purity laws. The realm in which holiness contended with impurity was the realm of life versus death. 
Earlier, I referred to the purity laws as an extended object lesson, and so it is. The lesson is this, the affirmation of the power of life triumphant over the power of death. I've mentioned before that the Bible is not concerned with proving a point as much as it is with making a point. This is one of the prime examples. What was the impact of impurity in Israelite society? To be impure was to be restricted from participating in cultic rituals. Usually regaining purity was a matter of time, after a specific period of time depending on the source of the impurity, and a simple ritual or sacrifice all was well. Temple officials worked in what was ground zero for holiness, so they were subject to additional requirements. Priests who officiated in the temple could not be blemished by physical deformities. Also, sacrificial animals, likewise, had to be unblemished and whole. However, Israelites or priests with deformities could enter the temple in order to offer sacrifices. But the original bifurcation between holiness and life versus impurity and death remains. Impurity was incompatible with holiness and could impinge on the realm of God. It was up to the Israelites to ensure the integrity of the holy sphere. Much of this discussion is drawn from Jacob Milgram's commentary on the Book of Numbers, published by the Jewish Publication Society. His excursus on the rationale for biblical impurity laws is one of the best discussions I have ever seen, so perhaps it would be fitting to let him summarize these findings. Quote, the forces pitted against each other in the cosmic struggle are no longer the benevolent and demonic deities who populate the mythologies of Israel's neighbors, but the forces of life and death set loose by man himself through his obedience to or defiance of God's commandments. Of all the diachronic changes that occur in the development of Israel's impurity laws, this clearly is the most significant the total severance of impurity from the demonic and its reinterpretation as a symbolic system reminding Israel of its imperative to cleave to life and reject death. Even people who are only casually familiar with the Old Testament or Jewish dietary laws will have at least heard the terms clean or kosher and unclean. These aren't quite the same as the purity regulations we just discussed. You don't contract impurity by touching a bacon double cheeseburger. Traditional Passover celebrations do require Jewish households to eliminate all leaven from the home prior to the holiday. But the rationale is different and limited to the specifics of Passover and the traditional Passover meal. That said, the designations of clean and unclean in the dietary laws are closer to meaning acceptable or unacceptable animals to be used as food. But as before, there is a rationale that helps determine what is clean and what is not. As before, it employs arbitrary criteria and, as before, it concerns the matter of life over death. 
In the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God gives very clear instructions about what they may use. All plant life is theirs to use and eat as they wish, except for the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Conspicuously absent from the list of permitted items is any reference to animals, birds, or fish. Humans were intended to be vegetarians, but almost straight out of the gate, humans seem to have a liking for meat. They are carnivorous. Following the end of the flood, God tries again with Noah and his family. We saw in part six of our podcast that the flood is arguably a creation story in which God makes a second go of it. We have a similar covenant made with Noah in which God specified what humans may use. This time animals are on the list. The language is that of concession. Humans may use any animal but only if they drain the blood. God allows taking of animal life, but retains his inviolate sovereignty over all life by demanding that the life-containing blood be returned to God by pouring it into the ground. What's even more interesting is that the penalty for not handling the blood of an animal in this way is the same as for murder. Animal blood may not be ingested. This is a rather stunning restriction and penalty but it also points toward the ethical foundation of the Jewish dietary laws. The Jewish prohibition against ingesting blood is spelled out in Leviticus chapter 17. The chapter repeats over and over, don't eat the blood in a way that sounds almost panicky. The text has an almost brittle feel to it. It is charged with alarm and fear of violating this rule. Here are verses 2 through 4. This is what the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, he shall be held guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood and he shall be cut off from the people. Here's some interpretation to help you understand the gravity of what's being said. Blood from slaughtering a sacrificial animal that is not presented to God at the altar incurs the sin of bloodshed, which the text reiterates, he has shed blood. In the Old Testament, this is the technical term for murder. The penalty given thereafter that the offender shall be cut off from the people is what the Hebrew calls the karet penalty. This is specifically an offense against deity. It is assumed to be punishable by God and not humans. The punishment, when it happens, usually involves the termination of the offender's lineage. This is not legislation to be taken lightly. But what's the point of all this? The Old Testament provides guidelines on how to tell which animals are kosher or clean versus unacceptable or unclean animals. Mammals must have a split hoof and chew their cud. Water creatures must be free swimming and have scales. Birds are okay so long as they are not predators or carrion eaters. Locusts are acceptable but other creeping things are not. 
As with the purity regulations, the list seems arbitrary because it is arbitrary. But this time there is a difference. The Old Testament embodies a yearning that sometimes breaks out into the open, a longing for the conditions of Eden where animals lived in peace with one another and did not exploit or kill each other. Sometimes, when the Bible describes its vision of a perfect world, it's the kind of world where the lion and the lamb lie down together. It is another expression of the steadfast Old Testament conviction in life triumphant over death. Since God is first and foremost a God of life, life must prevail. There are some instances that do get special mention. Swine are given extra attention because they played a major role in the sacrificial rituals of surrounding foreign cults. Locusts were left on the menu primarily because they were a ready source of food for the poor and the destitute. But what animates the arbitrary criteria for food animals and the additional requirement to offer their blood at the sanctuary? It is this the intent to restrict the taking of animal life to an acceptable minimum. In fact, if someone who follows Jewish dietary laws decides to go vegetarian, keeping kosher becomes trivial, almost automatic. Some might argue that that was the whole idea all along. The idea of restricting the taking of animal life and the desire to reproduce even partially the conditions of Eden become clearer when we look at the role of the temple in society and cultic life. Scholars have long understood the temple to be an architectural representation of the primordial cosmic landscape, in other words, Eden. This typology shows up across multiple cultures, both inside and outside the ancient Near East. If we review the constraints on the use of animal life, we see that there are concentric spheres of holiness, a greater ideological proximity to Eden as we move inward towards greater concentrations of holiness. When God made his covenant with Noah, that applied to all of humanity and all animals were allowed. The law of Moses, by which God's holy people live, constrains things and draws the distinction between clean and unclean. Many animals available to non-Israelites are now off the Israelite menu. But when you come to the epicenter of holiness, that was the temple. Only a few animals, sheep, oxen, and goats, were acceptable for sacrifice, and those animals had to be whole, unblemished specimens. The closer you get to Eden, the more life prevails, as the constraints on taking animal life shrink ever further. But this time, although there is clearly an object lesson in the dietary laws, it was far more serious. The consequences for the waste or ingestion of animal blood was much worse than the effects of contracting impurity. To the best of my knowledge, there was no sacrifice or expiation possible for a correct penalty attached to the prohibition against consuming blood. People who, through hearsay, regard the Old Testament as a primitive book, defined by wholesale slaughter, genocide, stonings, and other barbaric practices, 
might be surprised to learn that the book strongly resists the impulses behind those practices. However, it also acknowledges that humanity can and often does behave badly. The wisdom of the Old Testament is the way it attempts to meet humanity halfway and insists that we glimpse, however distant, our better nature. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.